Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. International News Review. Yes, it's International News Review with the man who we have missed. We have missed. We've had some wonderful, wonderful guys and ladies stepping in for Steve Oaken, but there's only one. Wait, really? There's only one. There's only one Steve Oaken, and he's been a door knocking across Mm. the mighty of Washington. Tell us what you've been doing. Great to be back, and it was great to spend a couple weeks in my old hometown of Washington, D.C. Um, so I, as chair of the AmCham's of Asia Pacific, which is the umbrella organization of, of 25 American chambers of commerce across the region, every summer we go back to meet with the administration. So in this case, the Biden administration, we meet with members of Congress, we meet with think tanks um, to discuss with them the importance of regional economic leadership by the United States in Asia Pacific and so that they can hear from those of us who live and work here Mm. what's happening on the ground and so we can learn from them what the perspective is in Washington so when we come back we can be more effective at working both with business and with the governments here. This is fabulous. Two things to that. The first thing is you've said on this show many times that the Trump administration largely ignored this region. Would that be fair to say? And you see that in more recent times, Biden has shifted more towards Asia Pacific. Was that what you felt on the ground, number one? And number two, do they really take on board what you guys say? Two, I mean, the Trump administration did not ignore Asia, but it what it did was it looked at it bilaterally. So it looked at the U.S.-China relationship just in that lens. It would look at the U.S.-Vietnam relationship just in that lens, where the Biden administration has a very different view of the need to work with partners, friends, and allies in the region. And so that is clearly coming through in, in our meetings. And, you know, we do get meetings that typically associations may not get because we are coming from the region and we do give them a real world perspective mm. uh, as to what's happening. And and we need to try and talk about the importance. And, and one of the things that we talk about, for example, is how much China is coming into the region, how much China is moving businesses and workers and investment into the region, and that the U.S. cannot take for granted its former position that it was the leader when it came to economics and trade in the region. It now has a real competitor and it needs to up its game. So those types of messages, they do want to hear our perspective. Mm, That is absolutely fascinating. And for our listeners, particularly our business leaders, they need you to be that conduit into the U.S. What kind of responses were you getting to this information about China? I will tell you, I, I think collectively, now maybe it was the people we were meeting with, but collectively... Who did you meet first? Well, so we met with, obviously, the you know, Biden administration representatives from the State Department, U.S. Trade Representative's Office, Commerce Department, um, and then we also met um, on the Hill, bipartisan, so representatives from, from of Congress in the House and two, two key senators. So we really had a, a, a broad meetings. And I think we expected much more of an antagonistic decoupling approach towards China. And instead, we really heard that the U.S. recognizes that China is a competitor, but that China is also somebody the U.S. needs to work with and that we're not going to have a hard decoupling between the U.S. and China, but there is going to be a de-risking 
of the U.S. from China. And now what that means is is all being thought through right now. Well, you've half answered this, but as, when you was away, there were some China-U.S. meetings at various levels. Do you sense a sense of it thawing a little bit on the Washington side, the China-U.S. relationship, the need that they have to work, they need to come together on things like ESG, climate change, uh, supply chains, and so on? Yeah, I'm okay. It may be a bottoming out. As opposed okay. to, I don't know where to thawing yet, but we're certainly, it seems to have bottomed out for now. And now, you know, you've seen Secretary Yellen there and you've seen, you know, uh, Secretary Kerry there to talk about climate. Secretary Raimondo from Commerce is likely to go soon. We'll see if President Xi meets President Biden in San Francisco um, for the APEC summit in November. So you're starting to see more engagement there, which is much more important. Now, what the U.S. is doing, one of the things we talked about was these outbound investment restrictions that are going from the U.S. into China about where the U.S. can invest. Those are being narrowed. They were much broader than they were talked about. And so the the concept is that there's going to be a small garden with a high wall. Mm, and right. what that means is that the where you are going to be restricted in terms of doing business in China as a as a US investor or as a US company, it's going to be narrow, but it's going to be very high and you're not going to be able to get in. Interesting, Steve. I have one question for you. In fact, you know, a news of uh, Chin Kang, he recently, um, I mean, his disappearance and the removal from the position of foreign minister, you know, it's raising questions about whether this is expected to have an impact on U.S. and China relations. Where do you see this going? Well, I, if there's anything that this highlights where all of a sudden the foreign minister is gone, quote unquote, for health reasons, and then just yeah. gets replaced with basically no explanation whatsoever, is how little we know about what happens inside mm. of China in the Chinese government and the, and the party and how it operates. And so it really, I think, highlights that we can't really predict what China is going to do yeah. all the time and why the U.S. is pushing for a lot more engagement. It's coming on the commercial side, but it is not yet coming on the military side. Um, And, you know, one of the questions the U.S. asked was, well, how come, you know, Henry Kissinger, who is 100 years old, gets to meet the defense minister in China, gets to meet Xi Jinping, yet they won't meet with Secretary Austin, the current Secretary of Defense. So Mm -hmm. a lot of questions still about what the Chinese approach is going to be to the U.S. as the U.S. is working out its own approach to China. Mm. Last point on the door knocks, because I'm genuinely fascinated by it. What feedback, if any, did you take to the U.S. about the upcoming U.S. presidential elections? And what are you hearing about that? Or is that too sensitive when you're meeting with these officials, you don't talk bipartisan politics? We generally don't talk um, politics when we're when we're meeting with officials like when you're in, you know, like we're meeting them in the Capitol building. Right. So you're not talking you're not supposed to talk politics in the Capitol building. So we don't go get into that directly. But we we certainly took away and maybe the most fascinating meeting. Neil uh, that, 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 and Dan that we had was with the America First Policy Institute. Yes. So this is basically the Trump government in waiting. And what they learned, what the Trump, you know, what Trump conservative America First Republicans learned was that when they went into government in Trump's first term, they weren't ready. They didn't have the plans. They didn't have the people. In hindsight, they will say we had the wrong people. We didn't have America first believers in there. And so that when when we go in this time, we are going to be prepared. We are going to have all our policies laid out. We're going to have the right people in place. And it's very important. I said we had a very 
good and open dialogue with them, and I disagreed with with them at times in in our dialogue, especially when it came to ESG. Um, but we had a really constructive dialogue, and we as a business community need to be ready because if an America First president comes in, whether it be Donald Trump or somebody else, it is going to be vastly different for this part of the world. Governments here, businesses here. And so those types of things we talk about. What is an America first foreign policy? What is an America first trade agenda? What does it mean for a country like Singapore and Mm. Vietnam Mm. if you have an America first president as opposed to somebody like Joe Biden who says we need to work with allies and partners? It's Mm. fascinating you say that, Steve, because when I was in the U.S., I sounded like – here's one for Dan – I sounded like Michael Corleone, you'll know the reference, in Godfather 2 – when he witnesses the behavior of the Cuban rebels and they say, what does it tell you? It tells me the rebels can win. And that's how I felt going around America. The more Trump stickers I saw, the more MAGA hats I saw in residential America, I kept saying to myself, Trump could win. Trump could actually win. When you step outside our international bubble and venture into small town America, I went to five different states. I did keep saying to my family, you know what? Trump could actually win here again, which is astonishing if you're on the outside. You've just come back. Let's move on now to the presidential candidates, the election buildup. What's been happening? Well, of course Trump can win. (laughs) But it's shocking. I mean, to the outsiders, it does seem shocking. But when you're there on the ground... It doesn't. And I would I will say that the general consensus on where we are on, on U.S. politics going into the 2024 campaign. And remember, this is the House, the Senate and the White House are all up for grabs in 2024. The Democrats who control the Senate now, if the election were today, it would flip and the Republicans would take over the Senate from the Democrats. The Republicans who control the House would flip and the Democrats would take over from the Republicans. So you would still have a split government in the Congress as you have today. And that the White House, maybe you give a slight edge to Biden right now if it were Biden v. Trump, because Biden won last time and it's setting up to be very similar. But Look, Biden barely won. I mean, it was less than 100,000 votes in a couple yeah. of countries. You turn those and, and Trump wins. And so we're still kind of in that same place today. And and the question is, what what is frustrating Democrats is that the economy is coming back. Mm. Unemployment is down. Inflation is down. Yet Americans don't think the economy is, is good. It's yeah. not as – they don't think it's as good as it is. Can Biden – Get that message out. And what will the Republicans do if it's Trump? And look, the more Trump gets indicted, the more popular he becomes. <laughs> well, let's look with at the Republicans. Yeah. Just this week, yeah. well, t- a day ago, new charges brought against Donald Trump over the government secrets discovered at Mar a Lago. New indictments, they're supposed to be the worst yet. They're supposed to be the most damning yet. Does any of this cut through at all? No. Uh, and, and the reason it doesn't is because the Democrats say that what, – what do they say about Trump? We're going to let the prosecutor take care of it. We're not really going to make a strong political case against him. And what do the Republicans say? We're going to let the prosecutor – who aren't Trumpers – we're going to let the prosecutors take care of it. So you don't see the Republicans who are running against Trump attacking Trump other than Chris Christie, right? So you see him attack, you know, so Scott attacks DeSantis and Haley attacks DeSantis and DeSantis starts to attack them and they all leave Trump alone. And so until somebody really is going to take Donald Trump on, 
first in the Republican primary, and then when the Democrats are going to have to do it in the election, that's the only way he's going to lose. Right now, he's kind of getting a pass on it. Um, and every, let the legal system take care of it. But our legal system isn't designed necessarily to take care of it. Now, he's still got two huge cases coming up against him. So he's got these new charges for the Mar-a-Lago documents case. He is likely going to get indicted in Georgia for interfering in the election, in the state election there. And then he is probably going to get indicted. It's not going to be for insurrection, but it's going to be insurrection related, whatever whatever charge they come up with against him for January 6th. Mm. So he's going to have four, five, six trials yeah. going on as he's running for president. Is there is there any way for this? Uh, I mean, would his sentence stop his campaign? Would it be enough to stop his campaign? That's a political question, and right now the answer would seem to be no. Constitutionally, it does not stop it. Yeah. So if he is – well, he's already been indicted. If he's sentenced and he goes to jail, no one thinks this is going to happen before the election, and few people think it will happen after the election. But if he were to go to jail before the election, he'll run for president from his jail cell. <laughs> so, so, so there is no end to this. There's only a political end to this. There isn't a legal end to this, and right now – we don't see the political end to this coming. All right. Staying with apocalyptic news, <laughs> the UN Secretary General said this week, the era of global boiling has arrived. Every temperature this week is exceeding, going past the most pessimistic of climate scientists' predictions. We've had the world's hottest july we've had the world's hottest week i read a commentary steve that said uh, joe biden should declare a state of crisis a national a global international emergency with regards to climate two things one is this going to register at all in the presidential campaign the climate emergency and two what were you hearing or discussing about esg in the u.s I mean, yes, it will certainly register. And if you're Joe Biden, um, who everybody presumes will certainly be the Democratic nominee, this is something that that young voters care about. Yeah. And, they, they, and they care about it a lot. So you'd better be talking about climate if you're the Democrats. And if you're the Republicans and you're not talking about climate, this is going to hurt them um, in in the general election. So it's moving that way politically. It's It's on the agenda in the U.S., but if it's still the US is still somewhat insulated from the climate crisis as opposed to the countries here that are dealing with it. When I was in the US there was terrible flooding in Vermont and it was some of the worst flooding yeah. in the history of Vermont yet only one person died and mm. and that is because the US has certain infrastructure in place to deal even with this type of flooding. They have the communications in place to get people out. They have the first responders to get people out. And so it's not as bad in the U.S. as it is here where you can see flooding in Malaysia, Indonesia. Hundreds of people die for the same types of flooding you get. So it is, though, starting to impact the U.S. like it is here. And they are going to put it on the agenda, uh, even more so than it is. But to really address climate change, then you have very difficult issues. So, for example, if you're going to have all this renewable energy, which the U.S. is putting in, but you need the transmission to get from the solar farms to the grid and you need permitting for that. And then you have environmentalists objecting to the permitting. Mm. And so you have people arguing both sides. So it's getting to be the rubber is getting to hit the road and the U.S. has got to figure out how to address this because without transmission, there is no transition. 
when it comes to net zero. And, and now we're getting to some really difficult political legal questions that the U.S. is just beginning to address. And you're going to have those same types of issues that have to get addressed here. And there is no solution without the U.S. and China working together. And when Secretary Kerry went to China, China very bluntly told him, no one is going to tell us how to address climate change. Right. We're going to do it on our own. And so we aren't yet where we need to be globally either. Yeah, just one brief point on that, the moral authority, if you like. It's anecdotal. As I said, I just come back from the US. I was quite shocked, as I mentioned to you off air. I didn't see a small car. I did not see a fuel efficient car once. If you went to a suburban car park in the US, they're all driving tanks, effectively. Four wheel drives, massive cars. Maybe some of those were hybrids. Maybe some of those were electric. I don't see the on the ground concessions being made on the scale that they need to be made. Is that fair? Is it still not quite reaching the ground, the, the, the impetus, the urgency of climate change? Yeah, I know, people everywhere. Yeah, I, everywhere. I, want, I want to affect, you know, I, I want to support the climate, just not where I have to sacrifice. There right? you go. I want everybody else to sacrifice. It, we're moving in the right direction. And I, you know, I would think it's, it's that, you know, it, it's, it's the Abbey Rose generation who's going to have to solve this problem and really push very difficult Solutions, because the problem is, you know, and we've talked about this before. There is a trade-off. If you talk about ESG, there is a trade-off between the E and the S. The yes. more environmentally friendly you make something, the worse it tends to be for workers. Yeah. Right. If if so, if you're in a coal mine today, you lose your job. If you're on a palm oil plantation and you say no more palm oil, you lose your job. Um, and so, who's going to so we're going to switch everything over to renewables. Well, what's going to happen to all the people who rely on coal right now? Mm. Um, are we going to allow a transition to, to, to LNG, which isn't as clean as renewable, but it's cleaner than coal? Or do you force everyone to go to renewable? So this E versus S you know, trade-off is just starting to, to, to come into play. And that's why when I was at the America First you know, Policy Institute and they were saying, you know, we, we don't believe in ESG, I'm like, okay, fine, call it whatever you want. But you better believe that in, in climate risk and you better believe that taking action on that is in a business's interest. This isn't about woke capitalism. This is about the survival of a business, which then leads to the survival of, of the planet, not to be too hyper. It's something we'll care. keep coming back to. OK, briefly, finally, the big issue that was Googled internationally this week mm. was not climate change, was not Trump, was not even even Steve's visit to the U.S. Barbie Heimer. Barbie Heimer is trending across the world. It is a phenomenon. The two movies, Barbie and Oppenheimer, will take a combined $1 billion by this weekend. Two movies in a week, $1 billion. What's this phenomenon all about and why is the world in awe of Barbie Heimer? And, and we should note neither none of us have seen it. Yeah. We're going to see it next week. <laughs> I'm seeing. I'm, well, I said I'm, I had to read. I wanted to read uh, American Prometheus first, so I'm almost done. So I had to read the book, yeah. and then I'll see the movie tomorrow. Uh, so I mean, it, and, and it, it's fascinating because you have, generally speaking, such a outpouring of support for what Barbie represents when it comes to women empowerment, when yeah. it comes that women can do anything. And mm. you had like Secretary Raimondo, the, the Secretary of, of Commerce, tweeted out a picture of her as, you know, Barbie secretary. And so great to see all of that. And then you get the inevitable backlash. 
from it and where the MAGA Republicans said that they didn't like the movie. And this was was Ginger Gates, um, Matt Gates, a famous uh, MAGA congressman. His wife didn't like the movie because Ryan Gosling's Ken had beta energy. Uh, uh, so, you um, know, not like the alpha energy the yeah. three of us. No, have, not like he, us. He has ba- so, so it becomes political. She also slammed the movie for not addressing any notion of faith or family I mean, come on. Uh, but then I, I was talking to my friends here, and you know, this is the summer of Barbie in Southeast Asia, setting all sorts of records yes. here. People having fun with it. Yeah. It is no offense to you and your Marvel universe, but it's not a you know, it's not a superhero film. Yeah. Uh, it's an original film um, with a, a female director, a female lead who is setting all sorts of record in Australia, yeah. Margot Robbie. Yeah. So just everybody other than the three of us really behind. No, this I think film it feels like a, a slight it. backlash to the CGI overload where yeah. these CGI films just look swampy and fake and video gamey and I mean these are real films, real actors, real sets. It's Barbie, right? So what can we expect? It's a doll, so I don't know about a CGI why not just have fun with it? They did. They yeah. pushed it, and it sounds yeah. great, and it's going to take a billion dollars this and, week. And, and, and so where, where one article I read where it tied into Barbenheimer was that why these two movies go so well together is because they both illustrate the trouble the planet has because now you have all the plastics that come out of Barbie. Yeah. You have the, the atomic weapons and the radiation that came out of of, of Oppenheimer and the yeah. Manhattan Project so that these films actually do go together because you got plastics and you've got radiation and the, the two <laughs> things the country and the world have to deal with. I'm not quite sure that that's what people meant by Barbenheimer or oh. Barbenheimer, <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but I, I, you can take any take you want. Brilliant. It. it works for me. Thanks, Steve. As always, it's great to have you back in the chair steve okin and that was the international news review to listen to more great interviews download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app that's a-w-e-d-i-o audio at the app store and google play